I thought about buying it, honestly. It's my one, like, coolest. Call it shop. Like, wacky back. Okay. All right. Is this record? Yes. Yes. That would mean that we are not nothing to him when you're talking about us as, as, as understood in chapter 2 as having a godly soul. You, know, you have to, what you do is you have to, you have to um, disentangle created reality and you as a human being which is part of that created reality, that sense of yourself versus the idea that there's a godly soul which is which is um, an et- which 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 is a pro- continuation of the essence of God, like a child is a continuation of the essence of the Father. So, if you mean to say that I, as a godly soul, am therefore still something, then you're right. But if you're saying I, as a human being, who is a entity within a created reality, then the answer is no. You're not anything. That's exactly correct. Um, this is actually where the point of a non-Jew having a godly soul becomes critically relevant. Because, um, you know, and it actually sets the stage for what's going on. The idea that you would want to have some kind of a connection with a being to before whom everything is nothing, everything, means you have to have some level of your being that exists outside this everything that's worth nothing, outside of created reality. Right. So, if you think about God as the creator, he fills the world and surrounds the world. But when you speak about this third level, we're not thinking of God as the creator because the very fact that there's a created reality counts for nothing. So that, that isn't the, the perspective on God being addressed there. And so that means also the value you have as a created human being becomes irrelevant. And then obviously a human being can't psychologically function on that level. You can't, you can't, you can't have any sort of drives or agency or um, sense of being if the very context of your existence is rendered meaningless. I mean, it would be like the most ultimate form of nihilism of just nothing. Right. Right. That's why the word world is there. Right. If we're going to think of God as God created reality, reality is worlds, what is this relationship as creator to that created reality? And the answer is he fills it, and he surrounds it, right? That every, all of the life-affirming qualities of the world are really qualities of the creator. And moreover, that God has this creative power to create reality itself, which is present in reality, but not really part of reality and what we can experience. But then this, this third idea, is just, it totally shifts the, the, point, the, 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 the perspective that we're no longer thinking of God as the creator. We're thinking of God as the being that he intrinsically is, and saying him being a creator and therefore the creator reality is valueless in comparison with that. 
So yeah, as a Jew who is in touch with their godly soul, I don't lose my value. Um, but as a human being, yeah, that, you know, that, that, which is actually going to be critical because what's important to understand is that what's, what we're describing here is, the, is going to be the, the, the reaction of this isbainanos, the reaction of this contemplation that the godly soul has. Um, okay. Okay. Yo, go for it. That was one question. So let me let me let me step outside the time and just have a very like basic discussion about modes of thinking. Okay. There are several kinds of modes of thinking. One kind of mode of thinking um, is very. I, I don't know what we. Um, it's what people often call black and white thinking. This versus that. Either this, yeah, or that, okay? There's another mode of thinking, which is, um, which basically says that there aren't, is a, is a denial of dualism altogether, okay? So just to be a little cliche, um, you know, there's a whole way of thinking. There's a right way to live, and there's a wrong way to live, and this is the right way, and that's the wrong way, and that's that. That's a way of thinking, right? Some people's minds really are predisposed towards that way of thinking. Usually, it is, it usually it's found in children, not exclusively so. Um, people that tend to have a very conservative bend in the way they think tend to have that kind of a thing. Right? Um, then, there is, then there is another kind of that, that really... All distinctions are illusions. That's another kind of thinking. Okay, so you know, it's uh, to be to be you know cliche like you know, all you need is love. We're all, it's all you know, it's all it's all one big good thing. Everything is wonderful, and distinctions are irrelevant. Okay. There's another mode of thinking, which is that everything is a matter of degree. So it's not that everything is the same, like in that second mode of thinking. It's not that there's hard divisions and one is the right and one is the wrong and black and white. There are differences, but all the differences are really matters of degree. It's very fluid. Okay. Is that, is that clear? So, so, for instance, just to give you know, examples, like when you, look at a, when you look at a color wheel, right, you could say, okay, this is red and this is orange. And make, but then you could also say, wait a minute, you know, the, the red gradually turns to orange. So in some sense, there is no real distinction between red and orange. But that's not because red and orange is all the same. It's because it's fluid. Okay? Uh, you know, or you could say something, and yeah, my, my, you hear my, my cynicism, this, it's all a matter of perspective, man. Right? Uh, meaning, like, it's all the same. Right? Okay. You, you could have these different things. question is, which mode of thinking is the Chabad mode of thinking? I'm not talking the subject matter, but the mode of thinking. You know, is Chabad trying to figure out this is right and this is wrong? Is Chabad trying to say all these distinctions are all 
illusory. They're all not real. Or is Chabad trying to say that, yeah, there are differences, but all the differences are, are, are matters of gradations and it's all fluid. Which one of those methods of thinking is the Chabad mode of thinking? The Chabad as a, as, a, as, a, as a system of thought and life focuses on? None of the above. It's a trick question. Chabad involved is a mode of thinking which can be called um, yes and or both. So it's so right, right. so it's much more like the first mode of thinking that this is this and this is that and they are different and there's clear and hard lines and divisions between them. It is not that these distinctions are illusory. The distinctions are real, and they are contradictory, and there is tension, and there is conflict, and it's not a matter of degree and fluidity. But it is not that this is true and this is false. It is this is true and this other thing is also true. That is an extremely difficult way to think. Okay? Right. Um, so, yes, it is true that before God everything is nothing. And yes, it is true there is a level of godliness to which creation has significance. And those are intention and coexist. Okay? And part of the real shift from the explaining things in a classroom and talking about it to the actual contemplative process is it starts to reshape how a person actually into that kind of a thinking, that kind of a mode of thinking. So I'm just give you some examples. Okay. So. Chabad, as a, as, a, as, a, as a movement, now I'm not talking mysticism, as a movement, is Chabad believe that um, it is acceptable to lower the standards of Jewish observance, to make Jewish observance easier for people? What? No. Okay. Evidence, please. Provide me evidence that that's the case. Can't drive to Shul on Shabbos, okay? Because driving to Shul on Shabbos means that you're not Shabbos observant. Not being Shabbos observant is associated with heresy, okay? So if someone who drives to Shul on Shabbos, therefore, what is the attitude to that such a person in Chabad? Are they welcome members of the community? Yes. Is that conditional on their driving or not driving to Shul on Shabbos? No. Well, then I don't. You should be hanging around the wrong Chabad. But it's, you can't like be a from Chabad Jew if you don't keep Shabbos, right? That's true. So that's right. Halacha is inviolable. Right. So then, are and you actually an in, like a woven in part of a community if you are not? Well, this is where you get this yes and yeah. thinking. Okay. Halacha is inviolable, and there is no compromise on that, right? Yeah. And your being integrated to the community does not depend on the degree to which you keep halacha. I understand that that happens. In no, that, but that's a matter of principle. That's what I'm saying. It's not that it happens. That's actually, in, that's, actually in, that, that, that's, that's, that's a matter of, 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 of ideology. This is what I'm trying to explain. That this, is be, this only makes sense if you have this mode of thinking that this is true, okay. this is true, they are not the same, there is serious conflict and tension between them, but that does not prevent them from both being true and coexisting simultaneously. Now what happens is because this mode of thinking is very difficult for people, and especially if you don't actively try to cultivate this mindset, what you end up doing 
is you end up trying to wash away distinctions or hold on to one side at the expense of the other. Okay? And this happens all the time. So people, there are people who think the Chabad is all about feel-good Judaism because, you know, do whatever you want at your own pace. And other people, the Chabad is like way too you know, strict about not compromising about things. Um, or, right, Chabad says that the world is a meaningful place where you can encounter God. And Chabad also says the world is valueless and meaningless. And which one of those is true? Both. Now, this is where, the, this is where you move from the teacher being able to teach the student having to learn. Because the only way to actually shift the way you think is to actually think yourself. So all the teacher can do is give you subject matter and guidance, but the actual hard work of contemplating and reflecting and pondering these things has to be done individually, and that does reshape how a person thinks about things. Um, and so you, you, you know that you are not getting authentic Chabad Chassidus if all of the tensions have been massaged away. If all the conflicts, if you're getting something that's this is the right way or, or all these or saying that all distinctions are illusory, or it's all a matter of degree. Anything like that is you're, you're taking an idea which might, that idea might be part of the Chabad school of thought, but you've, you, you've divorced it from, from its moorings and such, you're not, it's not actually an authentic representation of the idea as it's in the Chabad teaching. Every idea in Chabad has an antithetical idea which is also part of Chabad. And I mean that literally. There is not a single idea that there is not the same opposite. The, the, the second Chabad Rebbe, the Mitra Rebbe, is famous for in his discourses, is the one with the picture on the top left. His discourse is having the following line, which goes like this. Um, um, these two things are opposites. But on the other hand, we see eh, that they depend on each other. So in fact, they're not opposites. They're the same. But nonetheless, they're still opposites. Okay, I'm going to give a few more examples. Um, you heard ever heard the Chabad idea that the value of a mitzvah is independent of how of, you know how much you feel and how connected you are to it. Just like you know, the most important thing is action. Yeah. Okay, did you know that the Tanya is full of discussions about how your mitzvahs are worthless unless you have the right mindset? Yeah. Okay, so which one is right? Both. Okay, is Chassidus focused on being part of the community? And, and engaging um, with others and making sure that you're not, um, you know, that, that everything you're doing translates into a positive, good effect for other people? Yes. Does Hasidus also say that a person has to live a life where the only thing that exists is them and God and everybody else is meaningless? Hasidus also says that. I, I can go on and on. I can just, one thing after another. Okay. This, is, this is usually described in very abstract terms as ayin, nothingness, and yesh, somethingness, and that they're both true, and they are opposite, and coexist, and are unified. You can't explain to, you can't, just like I can't, I, you can't explain to someone how to ride a bike, at the end of the day they have to learn to ride the bike themselves. You can't explain how to really think that way, and perceive the world that way. You have to do the process yourself. A teacher can provide subject matter and guidance. So, we're always going to count to this. So there is a truth of godliness in which God permeates all of existence and creates all of existence, and therefore our existence obviously matters. And there's another truth of God to which all of existence is utterly valueless because the one thing that has true value is the inherent being of God. And how do those things coexist? 
that's so to speak where to use the code word of that's where the actual work of 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 of, of understanding and implementing chassidus actually takes place. Yes? What about ideas of God's greatness? Same thing. opposite ideas of God being lonely? What? Yes. 100%. Like, can, can you share something you might encounter? Um, the greatness of God, the, the, the greatness of God obscures his essence. The, the more greater God is, the, the greater... God, the more clear it is how God is transcendent and infinite and profound and lofty, the more you're actually obscuring his true being. This goes back to the idea that if you want to access God's true being, it's found in a lowly world. So there's an, a sense in which that the loftiest of people who's having the most sublime spiritual awareness of God is in a certain sense the person who's most removed from God. Whereas the person who... God is something they squeeze in, you know, in the middle of their day, almost almost out of habit, but it's the kind of thing that would never skip. Like, like I wouldn't make a bracha, like, I wouldn't eat or drink without making a bracha, but like the bracha is not necessarily filled with any deep meaning or even necessarily any great focus. In a certain sense, that touches on the being of God in a way that the, all of the um, transcendence and spirituality would obscure. Um, which then leads to a very important consequence, which is that there's no such concept as the ideal person, by the way. Because excelling in any one thing comes at the expense of this other thing, unless you manage to excel at both things, and then you have to kind of resolve that, that tension within yourself. And even if you do that, you're still just yourself, you're not the other person. And so this gets back to, like, if you want to put this in terms of gender, you know, are men, from the Chabad perspective, are men superior to women or women superior to men? Both. Not no, both. And they're superior in different ways. And therefore, is it better to be a man or is it better to be a woman? Both. But can you be a man and a woman? No. Hence, the Jewish ideal of marriage. Oh, so then you think, okay, so being married is this ideal state, except we can now, um, we can now t- take off of the bookshelf the, all of the volumes of Chassidus describing the importance of the unmarried youth and how they're superior to the married people, and married people are, are, are old and decrepit and stuck in their ways and aren't able to truly transform the world, and only young boys and girls um, you know, in, the, in the prime of their irresponsible teenage youth have the power to do anything. So I'm not going to talk about this because this is the kind of subject matter that you talk about people misinterpret. But um, there's discussions in Chassidus about about um, how that that there is something about God that is only reve- that is only brought about through having overcome having sinned, not avoiding sin, but having overcome the fact that you have already sinned. There's a discourse of the Rebbe where he speaks about that. All the explanations in Chassidus of how how anybody can do tshuva on their level, that doesn't detract from the fact that in a, certain, in a certain dynamic that a person who has literally sinned and has to deal with that separation has a superiority to everybody else. Um, the, the reason why we don't talk too much about that is people think that it's an invitation to go sin, which it's not. But yeah. Is that like the analogy? No. That's, that's different. 
Well, I mean, from the point of view of Chabad, Chabad's point of view is that all ideas about anything can really... Anything. ...is all subsumed within the Chabad ideas point of view. things, like wrapping the film, what's the negative side of that? No, 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 not that something is negative, but that there is an antithetical truth. So what's the antithetical truth of giving tzedakah? Uh, I'll do tefillin, because yeah, you asked. This is a, now, this one I don't have to make up. This is a true story. There was a, there was a, a, a soldier who was the head of a, of a platoon of about 100, 100 soldiers in the Six-Day War. And they were surrounded by the Egyptians. And there was no real way for them to survive. And one of them was religious. And he said that um, he inspired them that we have to fight and Hashem will protect us. And he started saying to Hillim. Um, and they fought. And this, this, uh, the commander, um, he made a personal vow with Hashem that if he survives, he's going to commit to putting on tefillin every day. It wasn't religious, but um, it's what he. So they fought. Everyone survived except the religious soldier who was killed. And the commander lost his left arm, which means he can never put on tefillin on his arm. That's how that works. Nope. Nope. You nope. can't do the mitzvah at all. Can't do the mitzvah. One second, one second. He was very disturbed by this. This is like, you make a commitment to God, save me, and I'll put on tefillin. What does God do? He takes away his arm. Yeah. And he was bothered by this. He went to different rabbis, asked for different explanations. No one got any, and no one ever gave him a good explanation. He went to New York. And I don't remember why, I think it was because one of these like ships that they did for wounded soldiers, and he was encouraged to go have an audience with the Rebbe. Um, and he was a little bit um, cynical about it, but he went, and they had a very interesting discussion for a long time, actually, about all sorts of things, especially military strategy. Um, and then it turned to this, and um, so he's interviewed, and, and um, he says something which I think is very important as a, as a prelude to what I'm gonna say. He says that what the Rebbe said, I don't know if it was a good answer but it was a good answer for me. In other words, if you set this up as a philosophical debate, yeah, he's into the Rebbe's answer. He says, I don't know, like, if you, like, is this, like, you know, as a matter of, like, philosophy and theology, is this, like, the right, ex I don't know. But when the Rebbe said it, my, my issue was resolved by this idea. This gave him peace and solace. Um, and the Rebbe said about his arm is that Hashem wanted to make to him to know that his love and concern for him doesn't depend on his religious observance. Not that you're buying God's love by putting on the tefillin. Mm -hmm. And so, and I don't know if, like, like April, would you say I want to lose my arm for that? I don't know. But for him, after the fact, yeah. okay, now, but what does that mean? What is the, what is the, ant, what is the antithetical idea of, of putting on, of mitzvahs in general, putting on tefillin, is this idea that somehow you earn God's attention, you earn God's love. And there's an antithetical idea that, no, your, God's connection with you is not conditional upon your observance whatsoever. Yeah. Which then says, okay, then why should I do the mitzvahs? Crazy. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh my gosh. Yeah, okay. <laughs> because it worked, how she brought up the husband and wife, how like you said you can't, obviously you can't be a man and a woman at the same mm -hmm. time. So like, what's the whole concept then? I don't know, this might be too far or whatever. Like related to like Bashar and like this isn't okay. Let's not go to Bashar. There's that's not necessarily. What's the opposite of that? Uh, who said that's an idea in Chassidus? Maybe that's just an idea people oh, talk about. Who says that's a real idea? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
ideas that aren't everything has are big ideas. Maybe. I mean, if someone says, I have an idea that 2 plus 2 is 75 elephants, I mean, I know that's not, like, no. negative thing also have a positive? Yeah. It's not antithesis, it's not, 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 so does every positive thing have a thesis? What? Yeah. Roast me. Yeah. Anyway, so this is... this Wait, is. say it works both ways? Yeah. I, I'll put it to you this way. Have you guys ever heard this word, bittel? Yeah. Okay. So there's this like trend that's very popular now of a, about bittel, and bittel has to be healthy bittel and the right kind of bittel. So I was talking to someone, I told him, you know, th- I mean, it's not that bittel is always the right thing. Like sometimes... You know, Chassidus also speaks of the importance of not bittel. It's like, he says, what? Yeah, I mean, like, what you're describing, it's not healthy bittel, it's just not bittel. It's not a bad thing, it's not bittel, but it's good not bittel. It's not cheese, not mac and cheese. Right? The idea that you created one box and this is the good stuff, and therefore everything has to go in that box, because no, no, there's this other box, yeah. which is antithetical to this box, and good stuff goes there too. Interesting. Like, the Chassidus is full of discussions of the importance and goodness of ego. Yeah, yeah, like ego. It, ego is, the, is, is a very important thing in Chassidus. It's a good thing. It also has a negative side. So then is anything, how can anything be good or bad? Ego? It depends how they're all put it's together. Good or bad? Both. Everything is both. That's right. Until it's... And so that the question is, this goes back to the thing, it's a question of how they're put together. It's not a question of labeling and throwing something in a box and walking away. It's a question of, are you able to resolve the tension between opposites, mm-hmm. or do you grab onto something and, 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 and then have to like distort and change something else? Mm-hmm. So this is, this is really not just a different subject matter, but a different mode of thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In education with people who are You're not allowed to do this with children. The Rebbe in his talks to children, one thing, if, the Rebbe spoke talks directly to children, and one of the things you'll notice is that this whole idea of yes and never shows up. Moreover, the Rebbe has talks about the difference when you're educating children and adults. And he says this is impossible for a child. So for instance, even something like the term animal soul, animal soul implies that there's some positive qualities to it. There's, there's something, it's not, it's, not, it's, not, it's not called the evil inclination. The Rebbe never used the term animal soul when speaking to children. He never used the term godly soul. Evil inclination, good inclination. The Rebbe never spoke about the idea of, of, of how doing tshuva after sinning brings you to a deeper connection to Hashem with the children. There's some, children, ch- children are actually incapable of this. Why? Because their mind? Yeah, their mind doesn't, doesn't develop. It's like, it's like babies are incapable of walking. Eight-year-olds are incapable of this mode of thinking. So when are you able, when you're 13, are you... So the Rebbe, the Rebbe writes in letters, usually in eight, about a year or so before Barabbas Mitzvah, depending on the child. That's when you can start slowly introducing this way of thinking. But until then, you should let them have incorrect black and white beliefs? It's not incorrect. The Rebbe is saying, one of the things is that correct, this goes back to, incorrect has to be measured not just against the idea and abstraction, but against the mind of the person. So if you tell a child an idea which is abstractly correct, but in their mind is completely misconstrued, that's, then, you're, then you're misleading them. But if you, if, whereas if you give them something which is incomplete but correct as correct as their mind can handle, that's the correct thing. The Rebbe points this out that that's why we're not concerned with, with little kids thinking that Hashem is a big man in the sky. It's okay for a two-year-old to think that Hashem is a big man in the sky. That's okay. Because a two-year-old is not capable of conceptualizing abstractions. 
What if like a ten year old is just very That's a problem. Advanced? What? What if they're no no, what if they're just very advanced? I don't mean that example that you said like you said it depends on the child, but what if they're just super advanced at a young age? Are you able to... This goes back to you know like if something is a halacha, it's a halacha. If something is a general advice, then obviously you have to adjust accordingly. You know, the previous rabbi was educated with these ideas from a very young age. Yeah. Well before ten. Yeah. Uh, I have kids and not all my children are the same and yeah. But but it's interesting that, that on some fundamental level children do have a certain rigidity. But yeah, so it's yes and. Yes the world is nothing and the world is important. And to all all other sets of ideas. So one of the nice things about children, and these two things go hand in hand, is that children, while they, while they don't have this ability to have yes and thinking, they also have this wonderful ability not to realize that things contradict each other. And they go hand in hand. Which means, so like young children, you can tell them two completely opposite things, and it's not that they have yes and thinking, they just don't even realize that they contradict. And it's as you start to realize that they contradict. So you can't say, there are these two ideas and they're in tension, but they're no, no, just like, say this idea and say that idea. They won't even realize that there's any tension between them. Mm-hmm. And as they start to realize the tension, that, that's an indication is as they're starting to be able to start having this kind of thinking if you work with them on it. In other words, I mean, like, I, I, have, I, have, a, I have a five-year-old daughter, and it's just amazing that, like, like, I can say an idea, and, like, if she doesn't understand what I'm saying, like, an idea on a five-year-old, then she'll ask me a question. And then I can say a completely contradictory idea. Not like, a be, not like a do this or don't do that, but like a this is true. Yeah? So, like, who's the most special kind of people in the world? Jews! Yeah? Yeah? And then, like, five minutes later, I can go and ask her, yeah. um... Does, 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 does Hashem think that every, every non-Jew, every guy is very special? Yes! No follow-up. <laughs> wait, wait. What's more special? That, like, zero. Why? Because she's five. Um, but as you start to realize that, wait a minute, the implications of this create problems for that, then, then you the problem, so the, 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 the Rebbe in one of his talks on Parashat Yisra speaks about this idea that with children, you can say two contradictory things, just don't, point, little, just don't point out that they're contradictory. They won't be bothered by it. But the Rebbe never did that. To children. He, he'd, point, would, he'd point out, he'd say A, and then he'd say B, but he would never say A and B are intention. Okay, so he did say like A and B in the same talk. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. And you as an adult can like, wait a minute, and there's other talks which speak about the tension, how the tension has to be dissolved with this yes and thinking. But the, to the child, it's just like, you know, like, like, it, like this whole thing that, 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 that can mitzvahs connect us to Hashem, but our connection to Hashem doesn't depend on mitzvahs. Like my little kids, no problem with that. Like this is true, this is true. And they, it's not that it's yes and. They don't even realize that there's something. Now, I have an 11-year-old. To him, we have to have discussions. I'm talking, what does that mean? Some an analogy and like start to train the way of thinking, yeah. But it is so. 
So this is an important thing. If you want to learn this stuff seriously, you have to always have in mind that there is always the opposite idea and that opposite idea will, is true and there is some way of them both being true and coexisting. What? That thinking is a way to connect to God. Because the, 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 the idea of the yes and thinking is that the real truth of God can't be boiled down into these opposites. And therefore, the, the pushing the mind to its limits. And this is, this, is, this, is, this is something that the Rebbe speaks about a lot, is that there's no the superiority of action over any mental activity. That I, can, I can go on for hours and hours discussing how the yes and thinking is the key to get at the true being of God. And the antithesis to that is that using your mind to get at God is ridiculous. You should just go like light a Shabbos candle. And that would be the antithesis of that. That thinking at all has any value. <laughs> so yeah, um, I mean, you can like, you can get you know, way deep down the rabbit hole with this stuff if you want to. Which is why it's important to have teachers. Because if you just freestyle this, you can drive yourself crazy. There has to be... There has to, one of the important things that goes along with this is that things have to be done in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a proper manner such that this is constructive and not just total chaos. Okay. So that's the answer to your second question. Okay. Yeah. Okay. This, by the way, leads me to an important observation about the Rebbe just as a person. This is why anybody can like the Rebbe and anybody can hate the Rebbe because whatever thing that you are predisposed to being a fan of, you can find somewhere where the Rebbe was in favor of it and you can always find somewhere where the Rebbe was against it. <laughs> Which makes for great marketing and if you're like predisposed to just find problems with Lubavitch, it makes it like it's just like shooting fish in a barrel because you can always, whatever you're predisposed, you just find, but that's, that's endemic to this kind of thinking is that. Yeah, it was in politics. <laughs> do you know that? Do you know that during? Do you know that during the Gulf War? You guys know about the Gulf War, the first Gulf War. So the Prime Minister Shamir used to make regular phone calls to the Rebbe. I think on a daily basis, asking the Rebbe what should the, uh, what should be, what should we be doing today? <laughs> there was like a, there was like one of those. You know, like they have the movies, the Red Phone, where like it was like that hook up with the Rebbe's office. Well, this goes to the other thing because if you if you if you the Rebbe the Rebbe made a standard thing is that Lubavitch we we support the good in all political parties and we are not associated with any political party. So there's the yes and thinking. There you go. Um, I, I don't know if you guys know too much about Israeli politics, but in Israeli politics, there's such a thing as a political party. And if you want the government to do anything for your particular segment of society, you know what you need to have. Yeah. Lubavitch, as a direct as an instruction of the Rebbe, is not allowed to associate with any political party. So as individuals, we're supposed to vote for the one that is most in line with the values of the Torah, but as a group, we are not allowed to have a political party or endorse a political party or be associated with a political party, which, which just means that our schools get less money. Is anyone ever outwardly like, I am pro? It means every election, all the parties that that all the parties try and court the all the all the parties that are remotely associated with anything that Chabad might be associated with try and court that they're the right one to vote for because uh, yeah. anyway. Interesting. Yeah. Is it, it, mostly vote for one party in America or like 
Did the Rebbe personals voting pattern? I don't know. Did he vote? Yes, the Rebbe was very big fan of voting. Oh, was he a citizen? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Big fan of voting. Um, yes, the, 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 yeah, no, the, 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 the Rebbe was, was, was very um, in favor of being involved with all political parties because every political party has good and no political party has a monopoly on what's right. The only party that has a monopoly on what's right is the Torah itself, because that's the wisdom of God. And once you're not talking about the Torah on its own terms, there's going to be some mixture of right and wrong. And so let's focus on the good and endorse that and support that without buying into the whole package. Um, my, I know that ultra-Orthodox Jews get associated with being like citizens of Republicans. So my uncle, Oliver Shalom, passed away. He was like a, 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 he was a shleach um, and a religious zealot and a hardcore Democrat who thought that Obama was the greatest president the United States ever had. Um, and my father, who's not a religious zealot, but is a Chabad Chassid and is a much more mild-mannered person, was a hard, is a hardcore Republican. So, and both of them felt perfectly justified in their political viewpoints based on the Hasidic teachings. There you go. So, anyway. Fine. That's all about the yes and thinking. Well, that, that's that thing is, you know... Sometimes we have to. Sometimes enemies have to be enemies. That's the, yeah, that's also true. Okay. Fine. So, let's go back a little bit just to get the flow of the ideas from the um, from from the line from the sense that starts for when the intellect. For when the intellect and the rational soul deeply contemplates and immerses itself exceedingly in the greatness of God, which we said has three subsequent stages how he fills all the worlds, meaning all of created reality, all of the things we experience that are real and life-affirming are really just him. Two, encompasses all the worlds, right? The very fact that reality exists at all and continues to exist is because of unknowable power, transcendent power of God present in everything. And finally, in the presence of whom everything is considered as nothing, that there is a deeper truth of God... That, and that from that point of view, the created reality itself and God's ability to create it and enliven it loses all meaning. And when one deeply contemplates and immerses himself in that, what happens? There will be born and aroused in his mind and thought the emotion of awe for the divine majesty. To fear and be humbled before his blessed greatness, which is without end or limit. Okay, so what is the first thing that happens as a result of this kind of contemplation? is that one is filled with what kind of emotion? Awe. Awe. Okay. In Yiraz in the Hebrew. And where is this emotion? Where does the text say the emotion is? In his mind and thought. Noticeably not where? In the heart, which is where in Chassidus we generally associate emotions with. Okay. Now, what is what is this, what this is talking about is actually a a in between stage between the full arousal of the midos of the emotion and the hisbainus, the reflection, the pondering. And basically, what this means is as follows. I, I'm going to use the the following analogy. How would you feel 
if you had to make decisions that involve the life and death of other people? Uneasy. Yeah? As you're making those decisions, what makes you feel uneasy about it? Hopefully. By the way, if you don't feel... If you're the person who doesn't feel uneasy about that, then be quiet because you don't want to publicly humiliate yourself. You should feel uneasy about that. I think two things, maybe. Mm-hmm. One, uh, am I really in a position to be this? Like, do I deserve to make a decision? Okay. Okay. So, what... What I want to do is I want to collapse those two things into one core idea. In other words, not that those are not that not what you're saying is wrong, but there's a core idea, which is the severity of and the significance of what I'm deciding versus the smallness of who I am. I am too small for this for for something so significant. In other words, there's an awareness of the pitifulness, and I'm using that word intentionally, the pitifulness of your mind relative to the significance of another person's life. Right? Now, at the end of the day, you might be the one who has to make that decision, right? Okay, fine, you still make the decision, but there's a certain, there's a certain um, humility and a certain reverence and a certain um, um, gravity to which you approach that decision-making process, Right? That is not the same as an emotional experience. On the contrary, if you are highly emotional, you really shouldn't be making life and death decisions. So there's this kind of thing where your mind has a sense of how, um, how serious or how significant what you're dealing with is and how small your own mind is in comparison. That's what should be part of your mind as you're engaging in that decision-making process of life and death, which is not the same as being in an heightened emotional state. Is that making sense to people? Now, if you are really reflecting on the greatness of God, yeah, that every positive, substantive, life-affirming aspect of reality is really a quality of Him. Let's just take that one. How much bigger, in every, in every meaningful sense of the word, is God than your own mind? A lot bigger. If your mind doesn't react to that, that means on some level you don't get it. Right? Just like with a life and death decision. If you can casually, easily make life and death decisions, that means you don't get that you're making life and death decisions. You're dealing in abstractions as opposed to reality. If, if after all this contemplation, the first thing that doesn't strike you is the seriousness, the significance, on some level, the audacity of your mind trying to really, really grab hold of, 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 of God, then on some level, you're just dealing in abstract philosophy. The first move towards emotion is not really an emotional state per se, but this sense of, whoa, this is for real. This is not a joke. Um, and if that's not happening in your reflection, in your contemplation, that means you're doing it wrong. Yeah, this is almost a litmus test if the contemplation is being done correctly. This is why an academic can never really come to develop love and fear of God by studying chassidus as an academic. Because what do they make sure to do? To maintain a certain level of distance. 
someone, a, a, a friend of mine told me about a relative of his who's, an, who's a chassid and an academic um, and in, in the field of chassidus, which is a whole interesting thing. The rabbi gave him instructions of and how to, how to be a chassid and actually be an academic studying chassidus. But it's, it's very interesting. But he has a, another colleague, she's, a Israeli, she's an, an Israeli, um, and not living in Israel. She also studies chassidus, just to give you a sense of, she, 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 knows, she knows like on paper, you know, more chassidus than most chassidim that I know. And I'm talking chassidim that are scholarly, not just like everyday women. Anyway, she called up the Israeli embassy to get uh, her passport renewed and they didn't answer and she kept calling, calling. And so she called the next day and said like, I kept calling, how come no one answered? And they said, Giveret Zaya Yom Kippur. She called on you. She was completely oblivious to the day it was Yom Kippur. And the Israeli embassy is closed on Yom Kippur. So that's the level of detachment. She knows all those books up there. And she doesn't know what day Yom Kippur is. Right. So that kind of intellectual engagement doesn't lead to this. We're talking about a different kind of intellectual engagement. No. I make a strong effort not to be an academic. I'm predisposed to being academic. Which is an academic, an academic is a person who, who, who you know, like you know, like people. They like you know what an academic is. No. <laughs> so you know people who like who like to go eat food because it tastes good. Wait, there's a name for that. What is it called? Like they make a whole thing about it. It's like a lifestyle. A foodie, right? Okay. So if you're a foodie, but instead of food, it's ideas. Like it doesn't matter the idea, but any idea, every idea has its own unique flavor, and you want to try them all out and explore them just because it's an enjoyable experience. Right? And then you'd like to get paid for it and some social recognition too? That's an academic. <laughs> um, right? But the idea that what you're dealing with is real and it actually matters and like it needs to affect you and like this is not a joke. Right? You know, it's like, it, 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 you know, the, 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 idea, the idea that, you know, like, like, or even people sometimes with their own lives, right? They can have these abstract academic discussions about like why they do what they do and the wrong decisions they make and then go on and continue doing them is it like it should hit you like wait a minute like like you're talking about the a, a, a reality which has a significance and and that's what he's saying is that the first step the the, the first indication that this is bonus is really a father and mother producing an, an, a child which is the emotion is that even in the mind there's a sense of humbleness a sense of deference to the, to to the weight of, what you're, of what, you're, what you're trying to handle in your mind. And that's true about anything that's significant, all the more so if it's as significant as God himself, who, enliv- who, who fills all worlds, surrounds all worlds, and before whom everything is like nothing. Right? So the fact that I could just, you know, the Alter Rebbe, when he would write Tanya, when, when he wrote any of his writings, when he wrote about the higher spiritual world of Atsilas, he can never finish writing the word. When you write, you're aware of what you're writing, as he was writing, he, would, he, he, he couldn't get the word out. He would, he would just, so in all of his writings, his own personal writings, it's, he, write, he writes half the word with an apostrophe. Because the, just the sense of the reality of what he's writing about struck him so intensely that it, it almost numbed, it, not numbed him, it almost it froze him. And so he like, right, and like, he, he, it, the significance of what he's writing about would strike him. And that's what this is describing. And the Alter Rebbe mentions in another one of his discourses, this is temporary. We're not talking about a transformative thing. This is, this is a quality that happens to a person as a result of the contemplation, but it occurs in direct response to the contemplation, and it's temporary. In other words, although later on we talk about the emotions, those are meant to be transformative, 
this experience is actually temporary. The person does not walk around the rest of life in the sense of the grand significance of God. Um, because to actually live life like that on, a, on an ongoing basis is actually a much loftier kind of a achievement. But to have a sense of it while contemplating God, while pondering these things, is, based, is the basic litmus test of whether you're doing this in some sort of abstract academic way or you're, you're taking it seriously that you're actually thinking about God and reality and it's the real deal. Yeah? So, so the answer to that is that on some level yes and on some level no. Um, there is a, Chassidus takes as a, as a point of view that all sin comes from a lack of being in touch with reality. Because, because you know, if you were fully aware of what's sinful about a sin, you couldn't do it. And that's a theme that Alter is going to address at length in Tanya. So on some level, yes. But then to ascribe it to like a level of like childish naivety, no, that would be wrong. Um, it's actually very clear, there's a passage where Hashem comes to Cain and basically tells him, you have an evil inclination, it's going to be challenging, you can overcome it. And then he goes and kills his brother. <laughs> Most of us don't get the benefit of a God pep talk about the, the fact that we can deal with our evil inclination. <laughs> and we still realize that it's not a good thing. So, yeah. Plus, there are commentaries that say that the murder was actually not done out of anger and rage, but actually was done as a sacrificial rite. That he was trying to kill his brother as a method of human sacrifice because he was aware of the significance of death because his brother's sacrifice which involved killing was accepted and his sacrifice which didn't involve killing wasn't accepted so he said if God desires killing then the ultimate thing would be to kill my brother and so he wants to kill his brother as a sacrifice to God yeah so that's not Rashi's interpretation Yosef Albo in his Ikrim um, he was a middle medieval Rishon uh, philosopher Albo yeah, it's 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 in it's, it's, it's in a whole section about whether or not the God's commandments can change, and uh, and a very strong. In fact, the only the only original the only basically original work in Judaism on vegetarianism. It's anti-vegetarianism, by the way. In case you're wondering, it it makes the argument that Kain was a, was an ideological vegetarian. That's why he didn't want to kill an animal to sacrifice. Yeah. Well, it's one of those like taking an idea too far, <laughs> but that's a topic for another time. Yeah. Is the goal of contemplating God's greatness to be paralyzed with awe? No, the goal in Tanya in chapter three is to cultivate a love of God. That is really the ultimate. That is the goal, and that's going to be the main theme of of of, of the Tanya. Um, so in, that was bad. No, I said in chapter three. Knows what, what this chapter is trying to guide a person to do. I, I didn't say that it's always bad. This just goes back to, you know, are we talking about this? We're we talking about that. There is an idea of contemplation which brings a person to a place of total psychological polarisis, paralysis, paralysis, 
where they lose all awareness of anything other than the immediate presence of God. Um, and they are compl- their sense of self totally dissolves, and this is considered a very, very lofty attainment, um, and um, you can't get there without going through the stuff it says here, and you'll see the stuff it says here is actually quite hard for most of us to actually get even a little bit of what? Yeah, it's, I mean, this is more like, this is more like Yiri Law. Yeah, and Yiri Law is like, Altair goes on to later says that it's like way, be, it's like you have to be perfect in your spiritual service to even like have that even be on the table for discussion. Anyway, yeah. Why would it help us to develop a love of God to know that if we think about God, we're going to think of ourselves as nothing? Well, that's the thing, is you're not going to think of yourself as nothing. Because you're going to be thinking about God. I think if we learn more, by the time we finish chapter four, if not sooner, (laughs) there'll be more clarity about that. You were just, you were not even going to turn the page. Eventually we're turning the page. You know, I would like to finish this chapter before the Pesach break. Oh, we could do that. It's one page. Yeah. Let's not chapter four. Let's chapter I know. First, so we have over a month. Yeah, there we go. We might even finish next week. You never know. Okay. We still have side. You know, but it, it, sometimes we move faster. Sometimes we spend like two days on one word, and sometimes we spend like one day we go through the five lines. You know, it's, it's not... Uh... Okay. Sometimes a bracket. Okay. Okay. Next. Greatness. <laughs> and to have the dread of God in his heart. Okay? Now, what happens at this point after the, after, the, after the fear in the mind comes dread in the heart? Now, at this point, something very important happens. Why fear? Because fear, remember, we discussed earlier about the difference between love and fear is fear, all the emotions that are about my smallness relative to somebody else's greatness is described in Chassidus as fear. Fear of punishment is never talked about in, in Tanya and is discussed, to my knowledge, in only two places in the entire Chassidus Chabad. There might be a third that I'm unaware of. But if it is, it's in some obscure safer that's not generally learned by most people. So whenever Chassidus speaks about fear, it is never, unless explicitly stated, referring to fear of punishment. It's referring to the sense of smallness relative to someone else's bigness. So it includes all sorts of things like awe, trepidation, um, um, shyness, bashfulness, humility, respect, um, submissiveness, etc. All those kinds of things. All grouped under year. Okay. Now, what happens here is like this. It says that there's a shift from the awe uh, um, and fear which is in the mind to a dread in the heart. Now, what's important to understand is like this. Have you, anyone here ever suffered from anxiety? And I don't mean as a mental illness, although if you have, that also works. I mean just that you've that actually undergone the experience of anxiety. Oh, yeah. Okay, how's your thinking why you're feeling anxious. It doesn't work very well, does it? What? It's thinking impaired, right? In other words, 
a, a sense of anxiety turns off your, your, your thinking. I don't mean that thoughts don't occur to your mind, but thinking as a means of using your seichel in a constructive manner turns off. Okay. Now, dread has, a, has, dread has that element of anxiety to it. Okay. So this is like something as simple as you get in front of a person and all of a sudden you get tongue-tied and you can't remember what you wanted to say because like... Right? So if there's all of this hisbidness, all of this contemplation, this pondering, this reflection, what happens if that fear in the mind turns into dread in the heart? What happens to your contemplation at that point? It turns off. Okay? In other words, what I want you to understand is, is that, that, that the point at which it goes from, from fear in the mind to dread in the heart is the point at which you, are, you go from from trying to have a deeper understanding of God in your seichel to actually just now being in a totally reactive mode. There's nothing proactive at that point. You're not growing and developing. You are now reacting to what has happened. Okay? If we want to you know, go back to the analogy, what happens if a person, all this, it hits them as they're making a life and death decision, the significance of that life and death decision, and they start to get anxious. They start to get panicky. They start, they, the seriousness of this moves from the mind to the heart. At that point, they're not able, right, because at that point, the seichel is no longer functional. And so there is, this, this is that shift where you move from the seichel to the emotion. Is that initially there's this reflecting, and there's this pondering to really clarify and deepen my sense of this reality of Hashem being present everywhere, surrounding everything, nothing, whatever the issue is. And as that significance settles in the mind, eventually that significance becomes so overwhelming and it's described as moving from fear in the mind to dread in the heart. And at that point, the person is no longer in this contemplative state. They're in a state which is called a state of reaction, um, a state of intensity. And that can be very powerful. It can drive a person to do all sorts of things. But they're no longer in this more reflective mindset anymore. And the idea here is that shift is supposed to happen automatically. This is key. That's right. If you try to make it happen, then it's false. The idea is that the contemplation should be in such a manner that the significance of it resonates with this fear in the mind, which then builds into the dread in the heart. So it's almost like, if, if you want to use an analogy, um, and I, it, 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 it's almost like the thing that puts out the flame is the flame. Because what happens, how does the flame work? It consumes the oil, and when it's consumed all the oil, what happens? Yeah. So the idea is that what extinguishes the hisboinus is the hisboinus. The hisboinus has reached a, such a level of awareness of the significance and the reality of what your mind is dealing with that that eventually, the mind can't maintain that, I don't know if objectivity is the right word, but that sense of, of intellectual engagement because it's, it, it's too real. And at that point, the person shifts from a state called seichel to a state called midas, a state that's associated with the mind to a state that's associated with the heart. Okay. Yeah. His spilus? Hey, Saf, 
Pei Ayin Lamed Vav Saf. Spirals. In fact, this subject is so critical to the whole understanding of, of what we're just talking about that the, the son of the Alter Rebbe, the Mitlaba, wrote an entire treatise which is known as Kuntrusa Spilus, a guide to Spilus, a guide to reaction. And the main theme, if in a nutshell, is that pursuing these reactive states is bad because then they're fundamentally false. But avoiding them is bad because then you don't actually change. The idea is that you want to contemplate and reflect in such a way that they naturally occur. Has anyone ever heard the idea you shouldn't pursue pleasure? Mm-hmm. Has anyone heard that idea? Does that mean, does the correlate to that mean pleasure is bad? Mm-hmm. No, it just means that pleasure should ensue rather than be pursued. And the same thing here is that if you're pursuing the emotional reaction, you're not really doing the hisbonus properly. But to kind of sanctify the intellectual um, engagement as an end in and of itself is also wrong. Because then that what does that makes a person cold and moves them towards the, the um, derided academic. The idea is that the contemplation be pursued in a way that leads to a sense of the significance, the gravity, that eventually causes the, the reflection to collapse on itself and, and the, 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 the emotional intensity just ensues naturally. This is the idea of, you know, kind of like in a healthy, in a healthy uh, childbirth, you know, childbirth happens naturally, it doesn't need to be triggered. Like when, when the time is right, baby comes out kind of thing. Just continuing that metaphor because it's like the father, mother. So that's the idea. Yeah, yeah, that metaphor is right. The idea of artificially trying to, to elicit an emotional response was viewed neg- negatively in the Chabad tradition. So the idea of trying to inspire yourself to feel is viewed as, 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 as a route to self-delusion. Yeah. So is it possible for someone who's uneducated to already have those like pure emotions without the... Not these. Later on, starting in chapter 18, the Alkribus speaks about a whole other set of emotions of the godly soul, which don't require contemplating the greatness of God. Okay. And that what he speaks about those emotions is actually already being present and latent in the person, and those, um, the, and in that case, the purpose of the isbainus is not to create the emotions, but is to integrate them into the daily life of the person. That's an entirely different approach. So it's actually going to be two. There's two approaches in Tanya, right? and and which one is the right approach? Well, and yeah, yeah, and 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 you'll even see as you go through Tanya that that he he he. he he doesn't, even though I can tell you it starts at chapter 18, there's even references to before that, and even after chapter 18, it reference back to the first, um, that there needs to be a kind of a synthesis of both. But, but yeah, this, quite explicitly in chapter 17, the Alter, uh, sorry, in, 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 in chapter 18, the Alter Rebbe says quite clearly in chapter 18 that this is not universally applicable. Mm-hmm. This can work for, say, most people at some point in their lives, but it is not universally applicable to all people at all times. And there's this whole other approach of that there are already latent emotions, latent passions towards God present in, in, in a Jew, even without his bindness. And then the purpose of his bindness is something else entirely. So you don't get off, in time, you never get off of not having to do his bindness, but then the kind of his bindness is a very different kind. A different. Okay. Now, what are you supposed to do, though, if this doesn't work? So they cannot work for all sorts of reasons, okay? 
I'm going to mention something very briefly now, which is not discussed explicitly in Tanya, although the, uh, the, the Chabad, the Alter Rebbe, and other discourses and other Chabad speak about it at length. And the Alter Rebbe does make reference to it, although he, he doesn't highlight it so clearly in chapter 16, which is that there is something you can do to kind of, uh, you know what a bypass is? Like when a person has bypass surgery? So it's supposed to flow this way, but it doesn't work, so you like make a bypass, the blood flows around the problem. So what happens if the, this sense of his doesn't isn't really leading to this sense of the severity of the issue, the gravity of what I'm dealing with that ultimately creates that kind of collapse into a reactive emotional state? What if that just doesn't happen? So what you can bypass this by adding an element to the Hizbaynunus, which is called in Hebrew the Bechain, Bez Chof Nun, which literally means therefore. Which add, mean adding to the reflection, okay, given all of this truth about God, therefore what? Therefore, how should my life be different? Therefore, in other words, starting to, instead of being misbeinant on God, you shift your misbeinant to what, what, what does that mean should be different about you? So you shift the topic of the misbeinant of from God fills the world, surrounds the world, and everything like God is nothing to, okay, given that's the case, how should my life look differently? And then be as, and then, and, and then the Hezbollah just has to be just as everything we said before with the Chachman, the Bee, and everything that. And to bring it down to something, and that tends to trigger this kind of reaction um, because you've now made it much more directly personalized to you, your life, your circumstance. And so the, 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 the fifth Chabad Rebbe um, spoke very important that, that at the beginning stages of one is actually doing this stuff seriously, one should never attempt this Hezbollah without a Bechein. Because you're just not, it's not going to happen. You're not going to reflect upon God so deeply and so intently that, that the severity of it's going to cause you to have this intense reaction that your mind collapse, collapses into that um, emotional state. It's just not going to happen. The person isn't sensitive enough. And so the person has to give this kind of adjunct of saying, given all this truth of God, what does that now mean for me in my life? And then shift this bonus to them. And then they'll get some element of this. Yeah. Because the issue, because 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 the, because any feeling always involves you in reference to something else, and so when you start to make when this topic is not just God fills the world, but if God fills the world, therefore how should I be living my life? The how it relates to me and what does it mean in terms of me becomes much more acute, much more much more um, overt, and therefore the tendency to recognize the. The, 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 the significance of what you're dealing with is just that much more easier and that much more direct. Because remember, here we're talking about, so in that sense, you're, it's not as Alfred describes, you're not really reacting to the significance of the majesty of God, but you're reacting more to the significance that, that the, the demands that, that places on you. But that's a necessary step for beginners and also for people who are experiencing a low point in their spiritual sensitivity. Where he's describing here is more of the like, more idealized of everything has been cultivated and worked up. But, but to be frankly honest, this level of where the, the contemplation kind of collapses on itself, like the flame burning itself out, um, is considered to be a pretty big achievement. And um, throughout Chabad history, um, there was always this sense that, that you have to educate people
to first do this with that added step of the Bechayim. After contemplating everything else, so if you remember, I go back to when I said about the idea of like taking a Hasidic discourse and contemplating it. They would always say, after you've done that, now you have to contemplate what does that therefore mean for you in your life, in the circumstances you're in, what demands are being placed on you because of these truths that you've now contemplated, and I contemplate that. As a way... Expect to have the direct... No, and then expect, and then put that into your life, or you should just... If you're, if, you're, if you're asking a practical question, I would say you should take a chassidic discourse where these themes are addressed in a very contextualized way rather than just doing them. Yeah. As, like I said before, that, um, because that's just going to be more effective and that's for, you know, this has been the standard. Um, but, so, you know, the, 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 you know, with practices as small as spending five minutes really trying to do the hisbainness of thinking through it at least part of a Hasidic discourse, and then another minute or two by thinking about what, what demands, what um, reorientation does that put on your life, and on your life in, in, as an in, in, in individual terms. And then let whatever emotions are elicited from that rather than as it's described here. Not that as it's described here is impossible to achieve, but it's an achievement, and you can't run before you can walk kind of thing. Yeah. You could. The previous Rebbe describes how Chassidim used to do that with, with, with one line of Tanya, two lines of Tanya. They would spend five, 20, five, 10, 15 minutes thinking about that one line of Tanya in light of Ruling, and then what does that mean for their life? And it would sincerely move them, and their davening would be different. But th- there's another thing which is not discussed here, which is that also requires a level of, spirit, of sensitivity. And that sensitivity has to be cultivated independent of the Hispanos. No. No, I'm just saying in general, like, like, like um, and that sensitivity comes through like going out of your way to help other people by doing favors for them, um, being careful not to sin, um, being honest when you're deceiving yourself and others, even though it's painful to acknowledge that. Stuff like that is a prerequisite to having, the, the analogy that's used is if you want to plant a seed, the soil needs to be fertile and needs to be plowed. So if your heart is this, is this, is this like, arid desert, no amount of his bindness is going to make a difference. So there's this important side thing about you know, you know, living a life that makes you, you emotionally sensitive enough that this kind of stuff can move you at all. Which again, it's not talked about here, it's just talking about the, the, the internal dynamics of the godly soul, but because we're human beings with an animal, so there's these other things that have to go along with it. Yeah? Where is the same source? Like, where's the first place it's instructed? The first place, I mean, again, the Alter Rebbe does talk about it in chapter 16 of Tanya, but he doesn't spell, he, he almost, and if it happens, like, he doesn't spell it out so clearly, it's like, there's this approach, and then there's this, he doesn't, it, once you know it, you can see that that's what he's saying, but he doesn't say it as explicitly um, as some other places, but it's in, it's in Tanya. Um, chapter 16. Yeah? And that that that's because of the temporary nature of this sense of awe. The Altarebbe says that in a discourse that or he said that it's aroused because it's like something that comes in a wave. Like while the Yisbainus you have it, but it doesn't actually transform a person. Because to to walk around in daily life as you're doing your regular activities with a sense of there's God right here is, is, is a level that, that goes far beyond 
you know, what, what it, the Alter Rebbe says quite explicitly in Tanya, not every mind can handle that. So he says, someone asked him about this. He says, you said in one place not every mind can handle this. You say it applies to it's like the, the, the basic standard. And he says, but I wrote aroused in the sense that it's a temporary experience rather than something you're actually living with. All right. Now, what I want to point out here is that you notice that we've been speaking about fear. Okay? The real core of Tanya, at least the first 40 chapters, is all about love. Okay? I wanted for like one minute talk about why, we, why we're starting with fear, and the next week we're going to talk talking about this arousal of love and its relationship to fear. If you love God and you don't experience fear first, and by fear I don't mean like afraid of fear of punishment, right? There's this sense of awe and dread. If the error doesn't happen, then... As a standard general rule, the altar is later on, there are exceptions to this that can happen because of unique life circumstances. But as a general rule, what that means is that you're objectifying God and, what you, um, and therefore your love is really just a fantasy in your own mind. And if you want to think of a very simple thing, if a person doesn't appreciate the... Um, demands and the seriousness of really being part of another person's life and having another person in your life, then, then your love for them is really just you know, some kind of a narcissism. It goes back to like that, if you love the fish, you wouldn't kill it and eat it. Right? Because there's a love of someone and a love of something. As a standard general rule, your sense of God as someone is associated with this fear, awe, dread. Like he's real. He, there is someone here who really is like this. And only second to that can we then talk about my desire to be with him. If my desire to be with him is the first thing, then as a general rule, again, there's exceptions, as a general rule, what that means is that my subjective sense of God is a projection of my own spiritual desires and idiosyncrasies, and it's not actually someone that I'm having a relationship with. It's an objectification. And so that's why it's first this fear, and only then the love is going to come second. Now, um, that's in terms of when you're talking about his bainunus to bring about emotion. If you're talking about a person coming to God after having been distant, like someone who grows up devoid of religious experience or someone who has sinned, then that's an example where life circumstance can make it reverse. That that the desire for, like a, like a, like a parent, a, a child can love a parent that they have never known. Um, and they can feel a tremendous amount of love when they first meet them even though they don't know anything about them because that's tapping into something more fundamental and primal. So, but if we're talking about creating an, an emotions from the Hizbaynus, which is what was being described here, then the standard rule is that a love which precedes the sense of, of awe and dread is really just a, a, a kind of a spiritual objectification of God rather than actually a love towards him as a real being. Okay. And we will next week talk about love because really, despite my um, cynicism, it really is in Tanya all about love. Wait till you find out what love means. All you need is love. No, no, no. The algorithm is quite clear. That's not, I just, that's not true. In fact, someone gave me something. It does. All you need is love and then whatever they were advertising. <laughs>